0: Different cultures, different times, different history. It's something like the Eucharist is the word for Thanksgiving. It's this, bread and wine. Now see, if you were to walk by Jesus in the first century, how would you respond to him? Don't know. But what if you were to walk by a cup of wine And a plate of bread. Just looks like a cup of wine and a plate of bread. but You see, we're here uh, because of this, but not because of this, you see. Because behind all of what this symbolizes are precious and very great promises, ancient prophecies, all mediated by the word of God and the spirit that has drawn people for millennia to the one true Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. Yet, from the outside looking in, it would simply just seem to be some bread and some wine. There's a difference the way people see Jesus. In Matthew 15, we'll begin in verse 21. We find these people approaching him. As we saw before, there's this woman, a Canaanite woman. So it says this. When Jesus went away from there, he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she says. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That is offensive. And she said, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her this most beautiful answer, and he said, "O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Few times that Jesus ever healed from a great distance usually involved him healing healing some type of Gentile that you shouldn't even touch if you were a Jew. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on a mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame and the blind and the crippled and the mute and many others. And they put him at his feet and he healed them. So that the crowds all wondered and they saw the mute speaking and the crippled healthy and the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, now I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, you have to wonder with this phrase, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down to the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish and having given thanks, he broke them. And he gave them to his disciples, and disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the seven baskets full of broken pieces left over, and those who ate were 4,000 men besides the women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Now, we know, because it's very easy for us to remember as we're Reading through the Gospel of Matthew, that it was only last chapter uh, that Jesus healed 5,000, I'm sorry, fed 5,000 people. And here, he's doing it again. He's feeding 4,000, though, this time. And you have to wonder uh, with the disciples' statement where they said, Now, where are we ever going to get that much bread? There's a reason this story is right next to the next one. And there's a reason God puts up with us, that's for sure. Uh, because you know, in our lives, as we've walked with the Lord, sometimes uh, we say things like, well, how is, how is God going to possibly do that? And we can't even remember the last chapter of our life and his fidelity of walking with us faithfully every day, every minute, every year. I mean, honestly, even though this is, could be a possibility in life, Have you ever actually not been able to eat a meal whenever you wanted to at any moment of your whole life? That's amazing. Not many people can even say that in other countries. But the reality is, he's got you. Everything you need, he'll give you. But see, there's a type of amnesia here, but it's really not with the disciples, where they say, where are we going to get this bread? So to understand it, let's back up and see the whole thing for what it is. What is it that we're understanding in the gospel here with Matthew? We know two very clear things we're seeing. Is that the Pharisees are opposed to Jesus Christ. And they're directly different than this one woman, this Canaanite woman. We know the Pharisees were opposed to Jesus Christ because of their pride. What we find in this Canaanite woman is that she is able to draw near to Jesus Because of her humility. That is, this Canaanite woman is a dirty woman. As far as any Jewish person would be concerned. And the Pharisees were, well, clean people. Earlier, this whole section of scripture started off where the Pharisees said this to Jesus. Why do your disciples not wash their hands in keeping with the tradition of the elders? It's all about cleanliness. There's no commandment in the Word of God, the Torah, that speaks about a need to wash your hands. They're speaking on their pride, and I would add papal pride, of taking the Word of God and making all these accretions, accumulations, adding layer and layer on top of the Word of God so that it's almost not even recognizable with all these human traditions. And then Jesus pulls them aside and said, Well, I'm glad you asked about that how come you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your arrogant human religious traditions? And that pits them very closely from one another. And so Jesus pushes away from the Pharisees. Right after that, this woman who doesn't know anything about Pharisaical oral law or tradition comes to him. She addresses him as the son of David. She knows more about Israel's own Messiah than Israel's scholars and religious leaders. The reason see the question is, who is he? How do people perceive Jesus? The reason she's able to see him, explicitly from the text, is that she's just a humble woman. Like it's not an intellectual thing, you see. There's a particular moral barrier that she was able to overcome. Because she didn't really consider herself of any importance. It's evident to the fact because Jesus called her a dog. And she said, yes. Like, that's not normal, right? We don't, do, like, we don't go out tomorrow, walk in the streets, and just start calling people dogs and talking down to them. Like, that's not how you make friends. That's like, like Friendship Class 101. Don't say that. And Jesus goes to her and says that to her. And she said, yes, Lord. The first word's out of her mouth. Yes, Lord. But Lord, let me eat at your table. She's so humble, she's able to press in to the presence of God and actually see Jesus for who he is. She drew near. And Jesus said, oh, woman, great is your faith. She was able to see this. The difference really is, and we would know this one fairly well, the difference between dogs and humans Right, So like dogs are able to see and hear and smell all sorts of stuff better than we can. Their, their ability to hear, uh, scent, even pressures they can tell when a storm's coming. If you ever had dogs, we had uh, one very precious dog to Heather and I, Zara, who uh, passed away uh, last year. But she would do this thing where she had this low growl. It would just be like, and then she'd bark. It was just so annoying, so annoying. And she'd just be staring at a window, just like, Grr, and they bark. And, and you realize, like, when you have these dogs in your house, they're hearing and seeing and smelling so many more things than you. And sometimes you're just like, shut the secu- house security alarm off. Like, I just don't care anymore. Like, I don't care if there's a leaf out there. I don't care. But they, they bark, and they hear, and they see. But see, it's not just the way they smell or hear. It's that they see. Something else about dogs is that they can, and they're, why they're used particularly for canine units and for uh, tactical purposes, is they can actually see in the dark. They have more uh, rods or cones in their eyes in which they can take in more uh, photons at even a lower, very dimly lit room. They can see things in a black and white type of color with less color but more detail than our eyes. Um, this woman's able to see, you see. And she is a dog, you see. Those two facts are the difference between those who come to know Jesus Christ and those who don't. Humility increases your sensitivity. You're able to perceive Jesus Christ. She's looked into the darkness, which is God, and seen Him. For example, this is the case. God, in Scripture, is told that He dwells in light and darkness, and both of them are mysterious to us. 1 Timothy 6.16 says this, God, who alone is immortal, and he dwells in unapproachable light. He said, like, oh, I wish I could just see God. I wish I could just know him. I wish someone would just turn the lights on so I could know and see God. It's like this famous passage uh, where, I think it's Thomas, who says, uh, Jesus, just show us the Father. That will be enough. You're like, I bet it would be enough. That would sure be enough. That would be everything. So He says that to Jesus, show us the Father. That would be enough. No, 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 you don't understand who God is. To ask such a question is to not even know. He dwells in unapproachable light. That is, light is the image of of knowledge, of turning the light switch on to see what's in the room, to have an apprehension, a comprehension of things. His knowledge is unapproachable. Like you can't hold God in your hand and say, I know him now. You'll never fully know him now. You are finite. He is infinite. You will never be able to actually apprehend him in a comprehensive way. His light is unapproachable. And the reverse would be the case that when he does reveal himself, for example, in Psalm 92, it says he reveals himself in clouds and thick darkness that are all around him. In Deuteronomy 5, when the Lord comes down upon the mountain to reveal himself to his people, how does he do it? Oh, oh, you know, just something real clear with being in the midst of fire, cloud, and darkness. Deuteronomy 5. 22, God reveals himself in fire and cloud and darkness. That is not apprehension. Psalm 139 says, speaking to the Lord, Night shines like day, and darkness is as light to you. That is, the darkness of God and the light of God, it is an unapproachable light and it is an inability to peer through darkness. There is a mystery to God. That is, he only has to reveal to himself, re- reveal himself to you as much as he wants. There is no one, no creature in the world can therefore stand on the threshold of heaven and say, knock, 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 Lord, show me yourself. He doesn't have to do any of that. There's no ability for us to even find him because we, the point of the whole gospel, like people say like, yeah, the gospel's about this and Jesus on the cross and, and, but I really want to get into like science and philosophy and really, really know who is God and why. It's like, then don't leave the gospel because that's it. The reason we don't know him is because of the moral barrier. The moral, not intellectual. There is a moral barrier between us and him. There is a transcendent moral holiness and goodness of which he is, and there is a fallen depravity of which we are, and that is the barrier. It is not a matter of turning the light switch on. It's not a matter of logical proof. It is not a matter of just having lightness to understand God. The woman knew less than the Pharisees. And yet she knew more. You can't forget that. She didn't know the Mishnah. She didn't know the oral law. She couldn't quote the Torah. She didn't train all the days studying scripture. But she knew the Lord of glory when he appeared. That is remarkable. Because she had no more barrier. She lowered herself. She humbled herself like a dog. That is our case. We must prostrate ourselves like a dog and pray on our knees. And the Lord will reveal himself. Because he has promised, you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. So we know why this woman was able to understand Jesus. Jesus. Now here's the question for us today. How come many don't understand Jesus? They don't perceive him the way he is. For example, why do the Pharisees reject him the way they do? I'll look at two verses i draw your attention to this morning. It points out beautifully why. The premier Pharisee we have is Paul. He wrote most of the whole New Testament. It's probably important to listen to what he said, because he was a Pharisee, and he rejected Jesus at a point in time. His answer for that is this. This is why... Jesus offended me. This is why I persecuted the church. This is why I thought this was all a sham. His word for it was this, flesh. His word, Paul Paul liked the word flesh. He said, I couldn't understand Jesus because of the flesh. The proud external realities of how you see all the world. Two two passages. 2 Corinthians 5.16 and Philippians Philippians 3.4. Writing to Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, he said this, I'm writing to you so you're able to uh, know or answer those who boast about outward appearance, but not about the inward work of the heart. And then 2 Corinthians 5, 16, he says this, Now, now on we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him, Thus no longer. It's Paul, the Pharisee, saying, I get it. I tell you, Corinthian church, regard no one according to the flesh. Don't do that. I once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but I regard him thus no longer according to the flesh. Now flesh, for Paul, usually means some moral sin, nature, corruption, also, the outward appearance of the pride of life. We know this because the second verse is this, Philippians 3, 4-8. Paul describes what he means by this, the flesh. It is the Pharisaical pride that he had that caused him to miss everything. He says this, I myself have confidence in the flesh. If anyone has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, to Pharisee Paul says, and Why? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a purebred. His mother was a Hebrew. His father was a Hebrew. As to the law, well, I'm a Pharisee. I got it figured out. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And then finally, to put it all together, he says this was my confidence in the flesh. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. And he meant that in a real way. That he never overtly, outwardly committed any major sins according to the Torah. That right there is all the pride needed to not understand Jesus Christ. All those lists he makes is what he calls the confidence of the flesh. And he ties it all up in a bottle. And he throws it away and says this. Now I count all things lost with a surpassing value of knowing Christ. Those two don't rely together. All of my fleshly pride, I wrap it all together and throw it away as scubalon in the Greek, which is a distinct word for what I'm not supposed to say in a sermon, but I can say it in Greek because it's not offensive. If I said it in English, I'd have emails tomorrow. Why did you say that in the pulpit? Well, I was just preaching the Bible. That's what he calls it. Dung. Filth. Refuse. All of his human pride. All of his credentials. Everything he ever accomplished. That clouded his eyes. He couldn't see Jesus. And then when he saw Jesus... He would give it all away to have Christ. This barrier, we know it well, what the flesh is this pride of valuing the outward appearance and not seeing the inward reality of the heart. An external, worldly perspective. You know what it's like. What are your credentials? What have you done? What have you accomplished? This is how everybody treats everybody. How smart are you? How strong are you? What can you do? More particularly, what can you do for me? This is how the world works. That's why they couldn't see him. They were thinking about all these things. So when the Messiah comes, they say, no, no, no. You can't be the Messiah because you can't do anything. We need a military victor that's going to do what the Messiah did and rule the world and you cannot die on a cross, it's literally unfathomable that the Messiah should suffer and be crucified. See, that's according to the flesh. Paul had his tradition wrapped up in all this oral law in which he interpreted the Old Testament prophecies according to his man-made human tradition, and it skewed his perspective that he had a partial truth, the Messiah should rule the world, the Messiah should do these things, but the Messiah could also, Isaiah 53, suffer, Daniel 9, Daniel 10, all these things that he's going to be exalted, but through suffering, he's going to be supposed to be a Zacharias says, he's supposed to ride on a donkey. That's not a war horse. But see, his human tradition, which was the problem of the Pharisees, why they couldn't understand Jesus Christ, is he didn't fit their human tradition. Because it was all wrapped up in the pride of the flesh. Jesus was missed. And Jesus turns everything inside out. Think of ourselves. Think of yourself. How do you view people? How do you actually really view people? It's a convicting thought. Back it up, because these two questions are related. How do you view people? And if you were, we read through the Gospels, if you were there at that moment when Jesus was walking the earth, how would you have viewed him? It's a strong suggestion that the way you answer one of the questions is the way you answer the other. We don't care. In this church we say we don't care how people talk, how they dress. We don't care about their education or their background or their accomplishments, where they live or what they drive. You see? Once you realize who Jesus is, nothing else matters. Nothing. The Lord of glory came down to save us in the filth of our sin. We are like dead dogs before him, you see. Humility, lowering ourselves. We are nothing. We are nothing compared to him. We are like dead dogs. And once you realize that you are as good as a dead dog, all of a sudden you don't really care about your dog house and your dog bowl and your dog bone. Everything else doesn't matter anymore. It's all refuse. For the sake of knowing Jesus Christ, being able to commune with the living God, being able to have life in his name that is not taken away and cannot be robbed from you, being able to actually be clean. To have a good conscience. To stand with your head held high. To not be groveling through this world. Wondering who thinks about me this way. And how do I think about that person that way. And what can this person get for me. And how can I do that for this person over here. But it's all related to I am in my father's world. He is my Lord and savior. I play for the audience of one primarily. To please him. For he has given his own blood. And his own body for me. That reorients everything. It takes humility to see him for the way he really is. And so right after Jesus decides to feed this woman, is his phrase. Why? Because the woman comes for a miracle. What did he say? It's not right, he says. It's not right for me to give the bread of the children and throw it to the dogs. Well, right after he does that, what's the next thing he does? He feeds 4,000. It says... That they had great compassion. He had great compassion on them. This crowd was with him for three days. Now they were lame, blind, crippled, and mute. All these miracles that he's been doing. He does them all over again. The great crowd came and they were wandering. Wandering. They were in awe of him. And it says this particularly. They glorified the God of Israel. The God of Israel. He directed them, divided them, had them all sit down. Then he says to his disciples, what are we going to do? I don't want them to leave and faint and be tired and hungry. And this question is, where, they say, where could we get enough bread for such a great crowd? He says, how much bread do you have? Disciples respond. They look through their sleeves and their jackets. And they say, oh, we got seven loaves. He said, "And you, you have to wonder what Jesus is. He's kind of annoyed. He's like, well, that's enough, I think. And so they all sit down and recline. Recline to eat. And Jesus feeds them. Seven baskets full of bread are left over. 4,000 people, men, are fed in addition to women and children. Now what is going on? It seems like a less dramatic miracle from his previous miracle. So Jesus... Previously, just last chapter in Matthew 14, fed 5,000 people. And he started with five loaves of bread, and it produced 12 extra baskets of leftovers. Okay, that's interesting. Now, he takes seven loaves of bread, and it only produces seven extra baskets of leftovers, and it only feeds 4,000 people. So he used more bread for less people with less lasting results as opposed to using less bread for more people with greater lasting results. Why is this miracle even here? And why are the disciples just as equally flabbergasted and impressed that Jesus should do something like this? It has everything to do with loving those who aren't like you. It has everything to do with what our culture needs so desperately. It's understood that Jesus is not in a Jewish area. He's in a Gentile area. That makes this miracle. Which has nothing to do with numbers. Or food. Or bread. Any more impressive. But so much more impressive. Impressive. Because he is loving Gentiles. Those who are not like him. Look at the context. They're in Tyre and Sidon. In the east side of Galilee most likely. After this Jesus gets in a boat and goes to Magdala which is in the west. So it would mean why would you get in a boat to go across the pond unless you were on the east side. The whole east side of Galilee was Gentile region. Jesus is in the Gentile region. When he does these miracles, it doesn't say they just glorified God. It says they glorified the God of Israel because all these people actually don't worship the God of Israel. And they are impressed by this Messiah from Israel. It explains why the apostles are having sudden amnesia to think that God might not be able to feed this multitude. No, no, no. They know he can feed this multitude because he has. And even a greater number he's fed. The thing that flips them upside down is that he would feed these people, you see. Oh, where could we get bread for these people? Because we know God would do a miracle for Israel, for my people. But not for these people. That's the miracle. That's the gospel. And then he ends by saying this. He gives thanks. See, when he was feeding the 5000 we're told that he broke every piece of bread and he said a blessing mm. but here he took those seven loaves and he gave thanks eucharisto eucharist it's like he knew what he was doing do you see what he's doing this is not just a story these are the beginning redemptive acts of the living, true God. He is alive today. And he has been calling dogs to his table to sit with him. Look at where you're seated. And look at where the bread is. Praise God, he did this for you. Don't focus on the 5,000 and forget now. He has fed 4,000 dogs like you and me. We have no place at this table, but he has made room. Eucharisto, he gave thanks, and he has been multiplying this bread, has he not? Are there not loaves of bread all across the world in which his children eat? Has he not provided for you? As you approach His table today, can you not say his faithfulness has proven true? Can you not say all the circumstances of your life, whether you've never heard the gospel before this morning or you've been following Jesus for years, he, this moment, has led you here today to hear the gospel and to eat at his table. That's beautiful. resolve as we approach this table four resolutions I submit for New Life Presbyterian Church because of these 4,000 that ate that day let us resolve to renounce all our self-righteousness to rely on nothing knowing one thing that Jesus Christ feeds the dogs And that is who you and I are. Let's resolve to submit all of our human traditions to the Word of God. Do you realize the danger? To take God's gospel and add all of your accoutrements to it, you pollute it, you ruin it, you poison it. Pharisees were supposed to wash their hands, and they're so busy about washing their hands. They have no time to understand what a dirty dog the woman is. And she is actually able to see the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a deception. It's resolved to be an outwardly focused church. Do you see? It's the people that are not like you. Do you understand that we are not like him? He is holy. He is so much more not like us than we are not like someone else. The ability to reach across, to be an outwardly focused church, to actually be oriented toward loving anyone who would come to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is the thing that trips me up pastorally. Lots of churches say, we are going to um, have a mission for our church. We're going to reach uh, the millennials. Oh no, we're going to reach those people that over there dressed like that, or this subsection of the city, we're going to reach them. I'm like... Is this not food? Is this not between life or death? It's not a matter of how you like your latte or Americano coffee. This is either you have Christ or you die. How could we think to try to put the church in such a way that it's our thing? That we are going to try to reach these people that are like us. We're going to play this kind of music. We're going to do this kind of sermon. We're going to have this kind of service. Because it's going to seek and appeal to somebody. What is this? Shenanigans. It's either you have Christ or not. Anyone who is a dog, who is hungry, may come. And there is no way we will structure the church in any other fashion. And let us resolve then to give thanks. As we come to this table, we understand that we come as dogs like the woman said. Oh, oh Lord, but even... The dogs can eat the crumbs that come from their master's table. Do you understand? Do you understand he has done more than that? That he has transformed you and made you sons and daughters. That you might sit upright here now at this table. Because of what he has given you in his blood and in his body. Dear Father God, I ask that you would, anyone here who has not understood themselves to be humbled under the glory of God, to be humbled under all their sin and the weight of all their condemnation. Lord, I ask that you would bring that about now. Lord, that we would approach this table understanding what you have given for us, this unity that we have together in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we come to this table unified and we come to this table inviting all who must come have Jesus Christ in all his fullness. Lord, we ask you to do this. Prepare our hearts now as we make this covenant promise is that our life is yours and your life is ours. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, please bless this in your name. Amen.